people think that they're uh, big time backpackers when you know they get the train up to Harbin now. I mean, this is a woman in a full length Edwardian dress walking around saying she's going to travel all around China, and I'm sure she did. Today on a special bonus episode, part two of my talk with New York Times bestselling author Paul French. We talk about his new book, Destination Peking. It's a fascinating look at a few of the characters who called Beijing home about a century ago. We spoke last week on Zoom. He's in southern England. Your new book is Destination Peking. It's 18 stories of foreigners who either lived in or traveled through Peking in the first half of the 20th century. You describe a city that is on one hand familiar, and on another, it's completely unrecognizable. Why did you want to write Destination Peking? <laughs> well, um, I'm getting on a bit these days. So I've been writing for quite a long time, and, I, you know, and I've been doing China since I was a teenager. So um, I've accrued, accrued a, a quite a lot of knowledge. And what I tend to do is I write kind of what I call my big books, which I guess are like Midnight in Peking, City of Devils. And, and these are books where I, I kind of want to reach a massive global audience and uh, talk about Chinese history to as many people as possible in as accessible a format as possible. And they take a long time and there are a lot of research, but obviously I enjoy it. And then I think, well, what am I going to do with all of that research? And sometimes people come up to me and, and offer me things like Peking Noir. <laughs> but also, I just think like I, I want to write something that's more for the kind of the China crowd, the kind of more of the kind of inside baseball you know, crowd of Chinese history. And so um, Destination Peking, which is the second book in my destination series after Destination Shanghai, is really a collection of essays about, I mean, for some random reason, I chose 18, 18 foreigners, although there's lots of others mentioned. 18 stories of people who came to Peking in the first half of the 20th century, some who spent their whole lives there, some who just passed through for a short period of time, but were in some way influential, some who are well known, some who obviously you've never heard of and are lost to history. And a couple of years ago, I did Destination Shanghai, which was 18 stories about people in Shanghai. And I thought, I'm going to do Destination Peking. And I set myself a a target of kind of putting it together. So many of these people are, are people who have popped up in my research or people who have interested me over the years. And I just wanted to put them together. I, I tend not to do the stories that everybody's done. And again, in um, Destination Peking, I've tried to make a mix of those people you will know, you know, Wallace Simpson, Duchess of Windsor, Backhouse, of course, the, the Hermit of Peking, people that you will have heard of, along with uh, Helen and Edgar Foster Snow, everyone in Beijing knows them, of course. Harold Acton, the great aesthete. Uh, but, but with people you've never known. Mona Monteith, who just came to Beijing in 1901, an American girl to work as a prostitute for a period of time. DeWolf Schatzel, who was head of the Marine Guard, who took down some of the biggest criminals uh, in, um, in Peking in the 1930s. Harry Hervey, the man who really wrote the treatment from his own experiences of traveling in Beijing uh, that became the film Shanghai Express. So, so, so people that you haven't heard of who've been a bit lost to history, that's the point of um, the Destination series, I think. And what were their impressions of the city? What did they soak up from the city? Not, what, not so much what did they bring to the city, but what did they get from the city? I really enjoyed the, the chapter on Mona Monteith, uh, who you mentioned. You uncovered her passport application, which is this incredible document. 
Can you just describe what you learned about Mona Monteith from her application? The, the reason we, we know a little bit about Mona Monteith is that when um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was president of the United States, he became very annoyed when he learned that in, in Asia, um, white prostitutes that were working in Asia were known as American girls because so many of them were American. And I'd been researching a, them a lot and writing about them a lot. And what seems, and, and many of them kind of um, after the, earth, the earthquake in San Francisco in 1906 just carried on and moved out and they, they set up places in Yokohama, Singapore, Shanghai, Beijing. If this was the next place to go rather than back into the sort of Midwest where most of them had come from and didn't want to go back to. Um, Mona Monteith comes very early, probably came to China in the late 19th century um, in Shanghai, where we know she worked as a prostitute. But like everyone, if you don't want to leave a paper trail, it's very difficult, like certainly now. But, but even then it was. And she needed to renew her passport. Um, and so she went in and applied for a passport. And I'm able to track her because there was a court case um, in Shanghai where she was named as as a prostitute. And so I had her name. And so I could follow her through now. In that case was another American prostitute who was known as Zaza Van Buren. Now, you may be surprised to know that was a fake name. So I can't really track her very, very easily. Um, but Mona Monteith was, was, as far as I can tell, Mona Monteith's real name. She really was a uh, second generation American from New York who, who had somehow ended up in Asia as working as a prostitute. And at certain point, uh, ended up going to Beijing. And what's fascinating about her is she went into the American embassy in Beijing, which is in the place where, where it still is today. If you go into the legation quarter down near um, Tianmen, there's the American compound. That was being built at the time she went in there because, of course, she was there less than a year after the Boxer uprising. And uh, when, when she went in there to get her passport renewed, I mean, this is a, a woman in Edwardian clothing, right walking across what is the rubble of of peking the the soldiers of the eight power allied army you know that that, that sort of looted peking after the, after the siege are still around there are um the bodies of americans who died in the siege still in the uh, uh, compound there preserved in um, salt and ice and so on ready to be shipped back home to america but it's taking a bit of time and she wanders in to get herself a passport. And I mean, this is this is a, an incredible, you know, people think that they're uh, big time backpackers when, you know, they get the train up to Harbin now. I mean, this is a woman in a full length Edwardian dress walking around saying she's going to travel all around China. And I'm sure she did because many of the girls moved around, particularly up to places like um, Dalian and Weihai, where, um, of course, the British and Americans kept their uh, China fleets. And so there was always business for the girls up there. And and what struck me as well was just the weird details that 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 she had to fill in. You know, the the height of her forehead, for example, <laughs> it's just so bizarre. I thought it's a standard American passport application, and anyone can go and get them. That, that, that America is great with its records, and you can go to the Library of Congress. You can find it online, and then of course you have to get someone at the like. Might be a bit tricky now in coronavirus times, but it wasn't when I went there. Yes, and they asked everyone, you know, what, what's your forehead like? You know, any any features? And some of them will have, you know, rather jutting chin. I mean, it's all, you know, you don't write it. The person um, filling in the form writes it and decides that you have ra rather rather narrow eyes or a rather jutting chin or rather um, rather pointy ears or something like that. Um, she, I think, I can't remember what hers said. But anyway, um, 
you, you, you can get a picture of what someone's like because their height and their hair color and, and, and everything is there. And it was um, absolutely fascinating. Um, and she's, I mean, there are any number of women and I have others that I've dug stuff out on, but she happened to be the one who went to Beijing. So she's in this book. Um, I mean, just, just amazing to think of um, the adventure or the, the backstory that is taking place with this. And she's only young. I mean, she's barely in her twenties and she's already been, she's already been working as a prostitute in Asia for several years and traveling around China and probably through Yokohama uh, and, and Japan as well. It's, it's, it's phenomenal to think of how, how global people were at this time. Speaking of the setting, one of the places that you describe, and I apologize for my horrendous French accent, is the uh, Grand Hotel de Pékin. Um, can you describe the hotel and, and w- why it became such an important meeting point in Beijing or in Peking? Well, you can still go to the hotel. I mean, it's um, it's there on um, Chang'anjie. It is part of the Beijing Fanbian, the, the, the Beijing hotel. Um, and it is the bit sort of, you know, uh, to, to, the, uh, to the west towards uh, the, the Forbidden City in Tiananmen. Um, it, and it's now called the Noor Hotel, or I think it's ungraciously called Block B. And that, that's the very old part of the hotel. And then over the years various um, architecturally uh, disgusting additions have been made to the, uh, to the hotel. But if you go into what is the Nuo Hotel lobby, you can in fact see uh, many of the um, features of the original hotel. Now, of course, they've done all sorts of crazy things inside. They've dropped the ceilings down so you don't get a sense of the, of the height of the, the ceilings. And everyone uses uh, the elevators, um, except me, of course. I walk up the stairs because the stairs are very grand uh, stairs. People have wedding photos taken on them, uh, but not much else. So, so the hotel is still there, but it really was the hotel. Um, I mean, at the time I'm talking about it in the 1920s, it was the hotel in China, um, along with uh, the now sadly all gone uh, Wagon Li Hotel, which was in the legation quarter. Um, but at this time, you have to remember um, Shanghai had uh, some nice hotels, but it didn't yet have Sir Victor Sassoon's Cafe Hotel on the Bund. Um, so the only hotel in Asia that could really compete with the Grand Hotel de Pekin was uh, Raffles Hotel in Singapore. Um, so it's an amazing hotel. And what it had at the time, uh, and this used to go on a lot in Shanghai as well, is a rooftop. So even in winter, people love to go onto the rooftop and they would have dances on the rooftop, tiffin on the rooftop, um, orchestras playing on the rooftop and you would you would go up there at night and there are so many wonderful memories that people have and they've written about of looking out across the city of course starfield city no real pollution unless the goby was whipping up a storm um no real pollution and you could and of course you could see across the roofs of um the hutongs and into the forbidden city and it was it was always pretty much the first place most foreigners with any money at all went to when they got to Peking and it was where everyone famous stayed Um, and of course it's right on the edge of what was the legation quarter right next to the forbidden city which everyone wanted to see right Tiananmen Square of course was not the vast expanse at that time right next to um, uh, Morrison Street as the foreigners called it Wanfuting or Wanfujing now of course uh, which was then as it is now the main commercial street so um it was it was an absolutely the epicenter of what was known as the foreign colony. We learn from Destination Peking that the aesthete Robert 
Byron, he did not have a high opinion of Peking's architecture. Um, he wrote that apart from the temples and palaces, all Peking is gray, the most motive and emphatic gray you ever saw. All the brick is gray. The landscape is as gray as an engraving. The tiles are gray. So is the air. Cubically and intellectually, he said, Peking is a vacuum. And others, like the journalist and novelist J.P. Marquand, who wrote the Mr. Moto books, wrote that he thought Peking was the most beautiful and delightful city in the world. Now, it's been almost a century since they described the city, and, and many of the hutongs and buildings that existed then sadly no longer exist. But still, I'm curious, where do you land on that spectrum, Paul? Well, it's the old Beijing conundrum, isn't it? A lot of people go to Beijing, and they don't really get it. And I'm not talking about, you know, the Beijing of today with sort of ghastly shopping malls and new buildings. I, I mean, I can't even begin to think about that. If you think about the Hutongs, a lot of people don't really like them. Um, and this is true of many people that did visit Beijing because you can't kind of tell what's going on behind them. Um, you don't really know what's going on. It feels very grey. The North China skies are very grey. And for Robert Byron, it also depends on, 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 I mean, firstly, on where you've just come from. Well, he's just been in Central Asia among all this blue azure and much more bright skies. And he's seen all these, these wonderful mosaics and tile works. So perhaps Beijing feels a little drab to him when he gets there. He also arrives to see his old friend, the, the wonderful British aesthete Desmond Parsons, who's really, really important. But we don't remember very well because he sadly died in 1937 of Hodgkin's lymphoma. And he had one of the most beautiful Hutong courtyards, was a great collector, not just of Chinese antiques and textiles and jades, but also of plants and botanics. Um, but he unfortunately died. And when Byron got there, uh, he realized that um, his friend, his old friend Parsons, was dying. And so that affected him very much as well. J.P. Marquand comes, uh, you know, who at that time was a, a novelist of sort of Bostonian manners, arrives in, um, in Peking, thrilled to be there on an all expenses paid trip by the Saturday Evening Post in America to create a serial, which he does eventually with the Mr. Moto serials. And by the way, I should say, for the, the films are, are, are largely rubbish. The books are actually much, much worth reading. The books are very good. And what happens to him? He stays in beautiful accommodation, all expenses paid and meets a woman called Adeline Hooker, who he eventually marries. Uh, so, so his experience of Beijing is different. And of course, that's true for all of us who go to Beijing. Some of us have an absolutely awful time. Others have a lovely time, discover love, career success, and so on. Others go and uh, you know, have a complete fail. But I do think that it shows that you know, Beijing is hard work. Sometimes I think a little harder work than Shanghai, where you can sort of walk down to the Bund and just sort of take it all in and decide this is something you like or something you don't like. Beijing, you really do have to work a little bit. You know, you have to sort of dig around and, and nose into places and try and work out what's going on and, and understand it more in order to appreciate this unique aesthetic of, of traditional Beijing. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you, Paul. Um, it's a really fascinating discussion. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Paul French. The book is Destination Peking. If you want to buy a real paper copy, I'll include a link to the publisher in the show notes. Thank you for listening. It's been incredible seeing the number of listeners go up week by week. As long as you keep listening, I want to keep making these episodes. 
And if you enjoyed this episode or any other episode and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, it would really mean a lot if you rate the show and leave a short review. Potential guests look at these when they're deciding whether to come on and the more reviews, the better. I'll be back on Thursday and I'll talk to you then.